Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamperin today. We're talking about the Ontario election. There is a debate on Monday. What is that going to do for this election campaign? Is it going to ignite it? Because right now, mm, not sure anyone's really paying that much attention, or at least not that many. We're going to talk about a possible discovery of a cause for SIDS. Spain giving time off to women who are suffering through bad menstrual pain. Crypto markets, they are suffering. They're up and down and all over the place. The LRT is back in the news. The CFL is on strike. There is so much going on. Stick around. We've got it all right here, right now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Later today, if you are interested in such things, and I hope you are, there is a leaders debate for the Ontario election. You will be able to get your look at the leaders and maybe become engaged in this election. I don't know if people are engaged in this election as much as they might be. I want to bring in Colin DeMello. He's Queen's Park Bureau Chief with Global News, who joins us now. Colin, thanks for the time today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, look, I'm not going to ask you based on just your opinion only, but based on anecdotally, based on polling numbers, based on anything. Has it, have any of the leaders really clicked and connected and moved the needle so far in this election? Uh, not more so than when the election first started. And, and, you know, to the point that you were making about, do people even know it's an election campaign? E- even those political operatives who you talk to who are out there talking to people, a lot of people are unaware that there's a political campaign or, or an election campaign going on. And some who are aware don't really seem to be that, you know, plugged into it or, um, you know, paying attention to every kind of little detail day by day. Uh, there are some certainly who are watching and paying attention because for them this is an important election campaign but it really does seem to be a bit of a sleeper election campaign so far and, and in terms of the numbers i mean we have seen some of Stephen del duca's announcements beginning to resonate with people his personal numbers and the party's numbers have been pushing up but they're not pushing up to a point where they might be able to dominate the election or even knock the progressive conservatives off of their uh front runner stance right now so it, it really is shaping up to be, you know, evening out to where we were before the election campaign. And, you know, it, maybe this is a different feeling campaign or different issue campaign if we're still in the guts of COVID when this thing is going on. But I think a lot of people feel, all right, that's done. So maybe some of the things that happened during COVID get forgotten. Because I got to believe, Colin, that for a huge swath of the population, this election is about how in the world are you going to help me deal with the cost of living Period. End of story. Make life more affordable for me. And what are you going to do? Cost of living has to be the number one issue. Ipsos had done a poll coming into the election asking people about their top issues. And while the number one and number two issues were health care and COVID-19, you know, number three to five and beyond were about various things related to affordability, whether it's the cost of gasoline, the cost of um, homes in this province, the availability of uh, homes in this province, rental, uh, et cetera, et cetera. On and on it goes because affordability obviously is one of those topics that really impacts us on a day-to-day level, right? You can feel, you can touch, you know uh, things are getting more expensive in this province. All of the parties have been making a lot of pitches when it comes to affordability, but no one so far has really come out as the dominant you know, crusader for cutting costs down uh, for the average uh, person in the province. And even when you talk about things like building homes and adding to the supply of housing to therefore bring down the price of housing. A lot of the plans are 10-year plans. So they're not 
going to impact you or impact the price of housing today, they will eventually slowly bring that uh, those those numbers down. Well, and to that, I mean, I also believe, and, and Colin, tell me if you think I'm crazy for saying this, but some of the plans that have been proposed, the numbers sound so fantastical that I think people then block them out and go, that's not going to happen. I, I, I think if, if some of these parties were to come with numbers that people could buy as realistic, even though they might be way lower than some of the other parties, people might say, yeah, I can see that happening. But what, what is it, a million and a half homes one of the parties has suggested in the next 10 years? I don't think people are looking at that going, yeah, that's going to happen. So let me jump in there. And that's exactly it. 1.5 million homes is one that all four parties have said that they are going to build uh, over the next 10 years. They have different strategies in terms of how they're going to get there, but most of them have said, okay, 1.5 million homes. And that really is difficult for people to conceptualize. Also, I mean, if you're living in a home currently and you have no plans to move, that doesn't really mean a lot to you. It does mean something to people who are living in rental units and condos, uh, people who are looking to maybe upgrade uh, to, to something else, uh, but, but 1.5 million doesn't really mean anything. What really resonates are the small things that that yes. you know will make a material difference. So when Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals say, for instance, we're going to make you know any prepared meal under $20 provincially tax-free, that's something that you can understand because you can go to Costco as an example and buy one of those um, rotisserie chickens that costs you know, under $20 that you now know will be a little bit cheaper. Same thing with the gasoline tax. Uh, Doug Ford has you know, proposed or they've passed into legislation. In July, they'll be cutting about 5.7 cents per liter off of the provincial portion of the fuel tax. That again, you know, okay, well, the next time I go to the um, to fill up my gas tank, it'll be, you know, five and a half cents per liter cheaper. So these are at the least. things that I think matter more to people at the end of the day. Five and a half cents, at least for a day or two until they go up anyway by by the industry raising them, whatever. Yes. Uh, Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm also getting hail in Etobicoke. So there's your update. Excellent. Yes. Yes. The, the apocalypse is upon us, apparently, politically and environmentally. Uh, Colin, thanks for this. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. One of the most tragic stories you hear at times from people or hear in the news or whatever else is the story of babies who died in their sleep of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, and their parents. And it's just anytime you've heard of this, if you know someone who's had a child who has gone this way and what the parents go through, it's it's just, it's it's crushing. And, and I am, you know, very thankful. That's not been my experience. Many of you listening, most of you listening, the vast majority of you listening, that's not been your experience, but you've probably heard of someone who has. Well, this has been for a long time a very misunderstood cause of death. Even the name doesn't really suggest a cause, just a result, sudden infant death syndrome. But now it appears that maybe someone has figured out possibly the cause for this or a cause for this. I want to bring in Mary Margaret Murphy. She is executive director of Baby's, Baby's Breath Canada which is uh, Canada's only national foundation focused on SIDS. Uh, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you, Scott, for having me. Um, it's great to finally have a focus on SIDS. Well, before we just get to the, the, the what they think now may be what mm. they've discovered. Right. One of the things, as I was wanting to talk to you today, I've been reading a bunch of things, and one of the things that's really stood out to me over and over and over again is, you know, if you have a child who dies of 
cancer, heaven forbid, or some other illness or whatever else, there doesn't seem to be this guilt that parents have that they could have necessarily done something because, you know, what can you do? Your kid got cancer. It's, it's horrible, but it's it happens. But it seems reading a bunch of stuff with SIDS that this is something that a lot of parents who go through this feel guilty that they should have been able to do something about. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we work with obviously uh, families that have gone through this. Um, and I, I mean, there's a police investigation, you know, because they have to review like was, you know, did something happen? Like did the parents do something intentionally? So there's sometimes a suspicion of guilt um, around it. And um, so, you know, they go through a police investigation and, you know, sometimes there's a, they do, um, you know, they go, go through the step, they have to go relive what they went through. And, um, you know, the coroner's office uh, back in 2012 actually changed the classification from SIDS to um, undetermined. So, there's so many things around that situation for families. Um, you know, they put a very, you know, healthy baby to sleep and, you know, they go in to check on them and they're not breathing. Um, so very traumatic for families um, or the caregiver, you know, if there's someone that's looking after the child. Sure, and, yeah. Yeah. So um, and that's, you know, one thing that um, actually came up in a um, New England Journal of Medicine article recently. Um, which was that we failed to provide families um, with a standard of care after, you know, they um, suffered the tragic loss of a child through SIDS. And, and because there's no, or has been no real known cause, as you say, undetermined right. or unknown, that's a, that just leaves everything wide open and, and again, leaves, leaves yeah. questions. So, so the scientists from Australia who, and I don't know, honestly, if they were looking for this or like a lot of discoveries, if they came across mm -hmm. this, either way, they are now pointing at an enzyme that's lower in babies, significantly lower in babies who've died of SIDS. And they, they say this enzyme at normal levels helps awaken babies from the sleep, from their sleep, but at much lower levels, you can understand if that's what it's for. Right. If you don't have this, you don't necessarily wake up from your sleep or you go into a deeper and deeper sleep, I suppose. Is this the idea that there may be an explanation? And we don't even know if it could be preventable yet. Just an explanation. Is that cause for some celebration? Well, I mean, for the longest time, you know, um, we've I've actually had people email me saying that, you know, we're spreading propaganda because SIDS doesn't exist anymore. So the fact that there is focus on SIDS right now and the fact um, what people don't realize is that there's researchers around the world that have still been doing research on this and they've still been trying to find the answers. And there has been a lot of research around exactly what this researcher discovered, which was, you know, around differences in serotonin. Um, there was a research paper uh, done by um, Hannah Kinney, Dr. Hannah Kinney in the uh, Boston Children's Hospital. She reported, and I'm going to butcher this, um, but decreased muscarinic cholerinic receptor bindings in acute nucleus, which is similar to what this researcher um, had discovered with the, uh, I'm going to just say BCHE for uh, a shorter way to say the biomarker she found. So this is very promising. It's very promising, but it's very preliminary right now because I think a lot more research needs to be done 
to determine, I mean, first of all, how this does have an impact, but at the same time, why do babies not have this, you know, in them? yeah, and I'm glad you took a stab at that one because <laughs> I, yeah. I wasn't gonna. I was that was that's it's it's a like it's a twenty dollar word and 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 you know yeah. we've never most people have never heard of this. So here's the okay. So we don't know where this is going to go right now. We don't know if they're going to yeah. find that okay if this is true that maybe we could give an injection that would give more of this enzyme if we know that a child because presumably if this is the answer we could probably do a test and find yes. out which babies at birth are susceptible to this and do something. But let me ask you this, and we, we don't have a lot of time, but okay. is that going to be helpful? Because on the one hand, you say, hey, yeah, we can give, maybe if we can figure out a way, we can give babies something. On the other hand, my goodness, if you're a parent who's just been told your child is susceptible to SIDS, it's, you're going to be tortured. You're never going to sleep. You're, it, this is going right. to be a horrendous thing to go yeah. through, even if there's a treatment. I don't exactly. know if it's, it's good, but it's tough too. It is. And the other thing is, is that we don't. So first of all, you know, let's say that the child doesn't have this biomarker. However, so they get, um, you know, lulled into thinking, oh, we don't have to worry about safe sleep practices um, because, you know, the safe sleep practices that came into place um, way back in the 1990s, um, and a formal one done in uh, 2010, actually reduced the number of SIDS. So it's like putting your baby back to sleep on their back, uh, firm mattress, no loose bedding, no smoking around the child. So, you know, our concern is, is that, you know, they're going to forget about um, taking those precautions because maybe their baby didn't test that, you know, that maybe they didn't mm-hmm. have this biomark, you know what I mean? So it, I think we want to be very careful, you know, moving forward. And definitely we need more research um, into this. And, you know, we've, we've always said that um, it, it's, there, there isn't just one single cause for SIDS. But it's a start. Knowing something, start. maybe yes. there is a start here. Uh, Mary Margaret Murphy, Executive Director of Babies Breast Canada. Thank you very much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Scott, for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. In the last few days, we have learned that Spain has decided it is going to offer three days a month paid off work for women who are experiencing severe menstrual pain. This has, well, on its face, it sounds like it's probably a really good idea. However, it has been met with some questions about whether it is a good idea or not. I want to bring in Fiona Martin. She's an associate at Samfiru Tumarkin. She joins us now. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me this morning. So let's just leave it very broad to start with. Is this a good idea? I, I do think it is a good idea. Um, I think broadly it does help with destigmatizing menstruation. It sends a message that it's okay to take time off if you're struggling um, with your symptoms. I think right now a, a lot of women feel ashamed of taking time off. They feel like they have to power through their pain. And if their symptoms are particularly severe, it means that, that they have to dip into their sick time or vacation time, which to many can, can seem a bit unfair. I mean, right now, just in, in the Ontario perspective, under the Employment Standards Act, there's technically only three days of, of job-protected sick leave. I know a lot of companies provide for, for greater than that, but if your company does provide for just the minimum entitlement, women are 
a lot of women menstruate more than three times a year, right? So to, to many, um, three days is, is just not enough uh, to, to handle especially severe symptoms of menstruation. The, the and you use the word de destigmatizing and it's an interesting word you use because this has been done in some other countries over the years japan has tried it the soviet union way back apparently once upon a time did this indonesia has done this south korea has tried it and one of the challenges that has come up in a lot of these is exactly the opposite is the stigma because you, the women now have to essentially tell their boss i'm off because of my period pain which is you know, it's a pretty personal thing. It's not necessarily what you want to tell your boss every day. And I'm wondering, yeah. does it destigmatize or does it make it more awkward for the person rather than simply saying, I'm sick today? Sorry. Because when you say I'm sick, no one says, what's wrong with you? They just say, okay, you're sick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly think there's, there's risks and concerns that it can further marginalize women. I think it's possible that some women who choose to take advantage of this type of protected leave might be seen as potentially less hardworking or less reliable um, in an organization with which might further kind of reinforce certain gender-based stereotypes of, of women in the workplace. So I certainly think that there is a possibility, like unless there's a workplace culture that kind of backs up the the policy or the that'll provide for uh, paid menstrual leave. I think there is a possibility, absolutely, that it could further marginalize women. Well, and let's go to that point you just raised. I think it's a very valid point. And in, even in Spain, this is one of the arguments that the opposition parties have been making. Because the, the Spanish law that is being brought forward is three days a month without okay. question. You can just tell your boss and, and that's good. But it can go up to five days a month in certain circumstances. And I, I, I can't help but think maybe you're right that a boss who's looking to hire someone is thinking, wait a second, if I could potentially, I don't know, I'm not going to ask this person in an interview how you menstruate, that, that you know, you'd be fired for asking that question. But if I could potentially not have this new employee for 25% of the time, basically, I'd be better off hiring a guy. And, and I mean, that's very blunt, but it's going to go through some minds, yeah. I'm sure. No, I, absolutely. I, I think that's definitely a consideration that, that employers will take and will consider during the hiring process is whether, I mean, if there's a possibility, five, five days per month is a significant amount of time, right? And so I think it's possible that absolutely, I think a, a potential employer will take that into consideration and they may more maybe more inclined to hire a male, uh, a male colleague instead. So certainly, I mean, this, it has been introduced in companies within Canada, like Diva International company, the Canadian company that makes reusable menstrual cups. Like it, there really needs to be a workplace culture that backs it up. Diva International is a female run company. It specializes in this sort of, it's in the, industry of of menstruation but um unless it's a culture that really backs up that it's okay to, to take time off it's possible it can kind of have the opposite um intended effect 
Right. And, and the other part of this that, I mean, you and I and everyone listening probably who's worked in an office probably knows that one or two people in the office who are off sick a lot anyway, male or female doesn't, I mean, mm -hmm. and you know, after a while you sort of go, really, you're really sick that much. Cause you don't really, you know, you don't have some sort of mm -hmm. underlying thing we know about. I just also wonder about it while look on the one hand, if you're going through this, and we probably all know someone who deals with this, you're probably not being very productive anyway, because you're in so much pain. So we get that. Uh, but you wonder about, again, the culture in the office, are people going to be really understanding if their coworker is away again and again and again? It's a, it's a, it's a tough balance to find. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's certainly a, a double-edged sword. I mean, I, I agree actively having to disclose that you're taking time off because of your period as opposed to just general sickness could be more marginalizing um, to women. I mean, in Ontario, there's no legislated menstrual leave under the Employment Standards Act. But if a woman does experience severe period pain and does request time off for work, um, if they have a condition that is supported, supported by medical endometriosis, an employer right. does have a duty to accommodate um accommodate her under the human rights code. So there is some level of protection um, in Ontario, but I agree. I think it's possible to actively having to tell your employer, I have to take time off because of period pain versus just like, if you say you're sick, I think a lot of employers will just assume it's because of a common cold that it could have potentially worse. Yeah. Kind of yeah. reinforce these stereotypes. I, you almost think, and we got to run, you almost think that it would be better to say, look, if you bring in a doctor's note and it just says sickness, we don't ask any questions and that's fine, okay. which okay. may work. Who knows? Who, we'll, we'll see. This is, this is going to be a, yeah. this is going to be, I think, an example that a lot of countries are going to be looking at to see how this works. Fiona Martin from Sanfiru to Mark. And thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Cryptocurrencies. There were a number of cryptocurrencies that were battered on the markets last week, losing billions, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of value. Question is, should we have seen this coming? Or should we have expected that it might have come at some point? George Bragas is the Assistant Vice Provo and Program Head of Business at the University of Guelph Humber. He joins us now. Thank you for the time today. Appreciate you doing this. Uh, no worries. Uh, uh, thank you for having me. So when I say whether this is something maybe we would have seen coming or anticipated, this has happened before, right? Cryptocurrencies are have a history of being rather volatile, big gains, big losses. This is this is not a first time. No, not a first time at all. Indeed, um, when when uh, the cryptocurrencies first came into prominence in 2017. Uh, they went up up to about, uh, and I'm talking here about Bitcoin. It went up to about nineteen thousand dollars US, and then dropped down to three thousand. So that was an eighty percent drop. Um, then in the spring of 2021, it uh, suffered a fifty-four percent drop, and uh, in the most recent drop, uh, the one that uh, we're currently going through, uh, we've also witnessed uh, a, a greater than fifty percent drop, and. Just to put that into context, the the, the stock market, uh, the general stock market has only has only seen uh, one fifty greater than fifty percent drop in the last fifty years, and we've seen three such drops in cryptocurrency over the last five years. 
So is this then, if you're an investor, is this simply the cost of doing business that you recognize this is incredibly volatile and you may make incredible gains, but buckle up because you could also lose a lot? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's what you're in for if you invest in uh, crypto. Uh, it's it's a high risk area. With that high risk comes potentially high returns. That's just part of the game that you have to live with, and you live with that by by taking various measures to uh, not put all of your money. At least if you're you know if if if, if you're <laughs> concerned, you know if you're smart, I guess would be the, w the way to put it. Uh, I, this is not something that you'd put. Uh, all of your wealth in it's uh it's something what uh, you'd put uh, money that uh, you're willing to say goodbye to would you agree when i say that i think there are still an awful lot of people oh, there's a lot of people who completely understand crypto but there's an awful lot of people who still look at this as some form of alien thing that they don't really understand what the heck we're talking about uh i would say uh, if you were to go to down the street you know downtown and ask somebody randomly what cryptocurrency is, uh, maybe one in a hundred, if you're lucky, would be able to give even a very basic definition about it. I suspect that people who play who play the market, a good number of them would know what it is, but they wouldn't know all the technicalities about it. They just know that it, uh, it's something that you could use to buy goods and services on the internet. You could use it to uh, set aside some of your wealth uh, as a sort of store of value. Uh, but they wouldn't be able to uh, tell you all the technicalities about how it works. So why has, I mean, with something that has, I mean, when it goes up to the values that it was at, and when we hear it talked about so much, how has it managed to remain such a mystery? Well, because it's quite technical. Uh, the, uh, the way cryptocurrencies work is through something called a blockchain. Uh, a blockchain is essentially a ledger. Uh, it's a record of all the transactions that have ever taken place with the cryptocurrency. So for Bitcoin, which is the biggest of the cryptocurrencies out there, representing approximately 44% of the market, there's there's a ledger. Uh, this ledger is distributed across uh, a large, extensive network of, 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 of computers. And uh, this ledger keeps track of who has Bitcoin, uh, where they've spent it, who's received it. And uh, that's that's fairly complicated to uh, understand. Uh, this notion of of a ledger that doesn't exist in a single place. It's not like you can go to a, a particular geographic point or a particular country. It's all over. It's all over the world of this computer network. And uh, this notion that a currency is managed through a ledger, uh, rather than through pieces of paper that you have or electronic notations on a bank account that you can access access on the internet it makes it much more complicated for people to understand. By the way, I think that I, I, I appreciate you giving the example or saying that one in a hundred might know it because I have a feeling a lot of people listening and I, I really believe this are going, okay, good. So I'm not the only one then because, mm -hmm. you know, with these things, I think a lot of people don't even get into it because they figure I'm the only person who doesn't understand this. And so I'm just going to not pay attention. So it, it's okay not to understand. You're not alone on this one for sure. All right. This though would then seem when you have this kind of incredible volatility where they rise so high and then they drop so quickly, this would seem to undercut a suggestion that anybody would want to rely on this as a method of daily currency, doesn't it? Or of, of standard currency? 
It does. That's really one of the great criticisms that have been made of cryptocurrency is that it has too much volatility to serve as an everyday form of payment for goods and services the way we use dollars. There have been uh, there have been attempts to um, get around that. Uh, there are uh, there are in existence what are called stable coins, uh, with Tether being the most prominent among them. And these coins are designed to maintain parity uh, with another currency. And so Tether, for example, uh, which is the third largest uh, of, of the cryptocurrencies by market capitalization, that is structured in such a way that it maintains a fixed value versus the U.S. dollar. So, you know, it's basically worth about uh, each each Tether is worth one U.S. dollar. Interesting enough, uh, last week, one of one of the stable coins actually imploded. It sent tremors throughout the entire cryptocurrency market. The um, the stable coin that I'm referring to uh, is known as Terra. Uh, and unlike Tether, which I just mentioned, which is designed to um, uh, maintain a certain fixed level against the uh, U.S. dollar, that was backed up by actual U.S. dollars. There, there are U.S. dollar, there's, there's actually cash and money market equivalents to back up the Tether. But with, uh, with Terra... Uh, it wasn't based on a one-to-one correspondence with U.S. with you know, with U.S. Co- uh, dollar collateral. It was based on an algorithm that was designed to incentivize traders uh, to maintain the value of Terra using another cryptocurrency called Luna as collateral. Uh, so, if you think the black uh, the blockchain's complicated, this algorithm and and this uh, method of maintaining the value of the value of the stablecoin is even uh, more complicated uh, and it fell apart um, uh, last week uh, just checked the value of, of tether this morning it's 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 down to you know d- d- uh, fractions of a cent uh, in in u.s dollar terms so there are there there are attempts um, there are various mechanisms that uh, are available out there to uh, reduce the volatility uh, but by and large the vast majority of the cryptocurrencies are, are quite volatile and we got to run. And so I only have 10 seconds, but is the whole point of crypto that there isn't government behind it? Like trying to stabilize it with the dollar seems antithetical to the whole idea of it, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, cryptocurrency began uh, just after the um, the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, it began as a way to evade or to escape uh, government run currencies and the perception that those currencies are subject to um, inflationary to inflationary uh, tendencies that cheapen the value of the currency. So yes, it's one of the interesting things about cryptocurrency is that it's lost that element. It n- no longer seems to be an inflation hedge, and instead, no. cryptocurrency prices travel uh, go up and down in roughly in line with technology stocks. George Bragas, uh, Assistant Vice Provo and Program Head of Business at University of Guelph Humbert. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Yep, no, no worries. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The LRT subcommittee is meeting today for, I think, if I'm reading this right, the first time in a long, long time. So what is on the agenda? What are we talking about? I mean, we're always talking about the LRT. This is the story that doesn't go away. But what are we talking about now? I want to bring in Ian Borsuk. He's with Environment Hamilton. He joins us. Ian, thank you for this today. Really appreciate it. Hey, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. Am I correct? Did I read that right, that this subcommittee has been sort of dormant for almost five years? 
Yes, it's been quite a long time. Uh, I'm sure as you and uh, everyone listening knows, uh, the LRT was unceremoniously cancelled, so there was no need for that subcommittee to meet for some time. But now that the project's back on track, uh, that subcommittee is is back up and running with uh, the affected city councils and a few from outside of the outside area. And uh, it should be good to finally see that subcommittee reconvene. All right, not to be uh, too dense or too simplistic here, but um, this is the story, as I said, only half jokingly, that will never go away. And it's um, it's hard sometimes with so many starts and stops to keep track of what's going on. What What is on the agenda? What is up for discussion today for this? Where are we going with this right now? Yeah, so the you know the subcommittee uh, for the LRT is uh, an important it reports to the Hamilton General Issues Committee, and it allows the councillors to kind of focus a little bit more in on the nitty gritty uh, aspects of the LRT implementation. And in fact, today, Environment Hamilton, along with Acorn and the Hamilton Community Benefits Network, we're going to be hosting a press conference at nine thirty outside of City Hall. And what we're really hoping for is that we could push City Council to uh, follow the lead that the City of Toronto set for us and pass a motion uh, and start working towards uh, inclusionary zoning along the LRT route. So as I'm sure you and a lot of listeners are aware, uh, a lot of housing has been demolished along the LRT route for, to get make way for construction. Um, you know, issues of gentrification have been majorly ongoing and from some research that we at Environment Hamilton have done with uh, some partnership with some students at McMaster, we know that uh, typically lower income Hamiltonians are living where there is high levels of public transit service. And the B line is, is sort of where that's a lot of that's concentrated. So really focusing in on inclusionary zoning, which would allow the city of Hamilton to mandate developers must include affordable housing and all new construction. Uh, would be a really good first step for that. Uh, there's also going to be a lot of delegations calling on the uh, council to support HSR operation of the LRT. And I think really what uh, what I really will hope you and uh, everyone can take away from this is that the project is moving forward and MOU has been signed. And really at this point, what we need city council and the city of Hamilton to do is while the story never really quite dies, um, it's really about ensuring that the project's as successful as it possibly can be, ensuring that we're not displacing residents, that we're allowing people of all income levels to you know, live and work in, in the downtown core and benefit from the LRT, while at the same time ensuring that the service functions well for riders and, and continues to provide great service that the B-Line has been doing for so many years. I'm not sure this is a fair question for you, Ian, because this is not certainly your decision, but let me throw it out there anyway. Um you mentioned how the LRT was unceremoniously dumped a while back and then it was brought back. This is this has been an ongoing, as I say, an ongoing situation. The last time when it was brought back, it was costed at, I think, $3.4 billion. Now, I don't think there's a person alive right now who, when we've seen what's happened with inflation and cost of everything, believes it's going to be built for that amount. It's probably going to be considerably more. Do you, do you have any concerns that maybe the political will to make this happen if they recost it and now it's considerably more might wither again. I don't have that concern, Scott. Um, you know, if you asked me that a few years ago, I would definitely agree a little bit more. But as we're entering the you know, provincial election, uh, pretty much every major political party has committed to the uh, to the project at this point. Uh, the MOU has been signed, as I said, which is uh, which is a really great point to reach. And I think ultimately as well with the approach that the province and Metrolinx are taking where they're going to be looking at the construction and doing it in phases, um, I think is the right way to go, really focusing in on how they can make uh, cost savings as much as possible. 
Um, but at the same time, it's really important to note that the city of Hamilton is desperate for higher order transit and the B-line LRT is going to be, uh, you know, uh, generating significant development, which is why we're doing the call for inclusionary zoning, because the, there's going to be a lot of housing built, no matter what, for a lot of money along that route. That's going to be bringing in a lot of tax dollars that Hamilton's desperately needed for. And, you know, really, if we're going to be looking at this, you know, what is the price tag on ensuring that the city of Hamilton is, you know, truly a complete city with a complete uh, higher order transit line through the downtown? And as you know, as you said, this has been a long time planning. You know, there's been literally decades of, of research and planning being put into this. The B-Line LRT is just the first higher order transit line that we have planned. We, you know, it's part of the full blast network that was part of the rapid ready proposal. So while the cost does seem quite high, um, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, not building the LRT is going to cost the city of Hamilton even more in the long run. Uh, building the LRT allows us to focus in on inclusionary zoning, but also transit oriented development and ensuring that we have good, dense, complete neighborhoods in the downtown core that generate tax revenue for us, as opposed to suburban sprawl, which ultimately ends up creating deficits for the city. So while the upfront cost might seem quite high, uh, in the long term, it only makes financial sense to, to finally move forward on this project and get it built. And you mentioned tax revenue, and I'm glad you did, because this is also something that's come up more recently, which is the idea, it's been rediscussed, I don't know if that's a word, but that's what's happening, uh, the idea of dumping area rating for transit so that everyone in the city then pays for this. Now, you know as well as I do that there are still those who really are not interested in LRT, don't want their taxes to go up for an LRT, uh, and so should more effort still be being put into selling the LRT to those in the city who may not be on board? Or do you look at it and say, you know what? People are dug in. They're either going to support it or they're not going to support it. Who cares at this point? We're just going to go ahead with it and hope that they buy in when it finally gets done. Yeah. So I think, you know, support for the LRT is actually much stronger than a lot of people suspect. And I think, um, you know, as you alluded to, a lot of folks have kind of disengaged from it because it has been taking so long to, to actually get started. Um, but, you know, last election, the, the mayoral race between Fred Eisenberger and Vito Scro definitely seemed like a one issue disagreement between those two candidates. And, you know, Fred Eisenberger was able to pull in pretty decent support citywide. Um, you know, I've been knocking on doors uh, in support of the LRT anywhere from Dundas to the, to, you know, to the East Mountain. And generally speaking, I think people... Um, are skeptical of the project for sure, um, but that skepticism would certainly go away once actual work gets started and shovels are in the ground. Um, and also on top of that, I think as soon as the LRT gets built and we start seeing, you know, the, the tenure transit strategy for the HSR really start to benefit and we start to see, you know, increased ridership in the downtown core as we get out of the pandemic even further, people will start to get won over by that. And the area rating question, I think, is definitely a good one. Um, you know, we at Environment Hamilton definitely want to see area rating eliminated for transit. But ultimately, at the end, at the end of the day, uh, the LRT is not just a transit project. It's going to be increasing development incredibly. So for folks who live, you know, in the more outer suburbs of Hamilton, uh, you know, ultimately, if you're in favor of preserving farmland, if you're in favor of preserving the character of those other outer suburbs, uh, building the LRT and seeing that development happen in the downtown core, while at the same time uh, implementing inclusionary zoning, so that way we can ensure that no one's displaced, that everyone can find a place to live and work in downtown Hamilton, um, I think will really benefit everyone. We'll start to see those benefits much sooner than a lot of people expect, I would say. 
That is Ian Borsick from Environment Hamilton, uh, the LRT subcommittee, back in business after a five-year hiatus today. Uh, Ian, thanks for the time today. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you were hoping for some CFL football, thinking, you know, we had covid and then we had which canceled a season and then we had covid which reduced the season i just can't wait for training camp to start so we can have a normal season yeah not so much steve milton is a sports columnist with the hamilton spectator he today writes about what is going on which is a strike in the cfl of course steve it has to be something right there has to be something that gets the cfl on the front page Right, we don't have a we don't have an, a pandemic for a hundred years, so it happens in this last year too. Uh, we don't have a CFL strike, Scott, since 1974, which had 48 years. Now it's happening. It it just doesn't uh, it doesn't feel right to me. It it um, it, it uh, as you say, it takes a it takes a little bit of the bloom off the road. Uh, if 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 spring training in baseball is is baseball's middle finger to winter, then uh, the opening of training camp is. Uh, uh, in, in the CFL is, is uh, the CFLs and, and really Canada's middle finger to uh, to goodbye winter and uh, it just doesn't feel right. It didn't feel right out there yesterday um, at McMaster. Players milling around, uh, not milling around. They were actually doing stuff. They were working very hard, but on their own. And then of course, that's all going to stop uh, as of today when they, the uh, players aren't allowed to use the facilities there except to stay there and uh, and to. Uh, to be fed during the length of training camp is my understanding, yeah. which is, uh, you know, I, I think that's a humane thing. So. Sure. But, but Steve, this is, this is, look, we just mentioned you had a year canceled and then you had a yeah. reduced season yeah. and it, it, this is the year you want to get out of your own way and try and build on some momentum and build things back up. The, the timing of this, and I know labor situations, we don't, you know, we don't plan them necessarily, but this seems like such a whiff, such a bad thing to happen right now of all times. Well, I, I agree. And I think on on the side of, uh, on both sides, um, you know, you can get arguments. You talk to one side and, and, uh, and you say, well, that sounds reasonable. And you talk to the other side as much as they'll say anything. And and, uh, and you say, well, that sounds reasonable too. But <laughs> when you add it all together, it doesn't. I mean, brinksmanship, and that's that's what they got themselves to by by taking so long. Now, I think it's been mischaracterized. From what my understanding was, there were all kinds of negotiations of some form or another on various parts of the CBA going on, all during this downtime as well. But you know, in terms of the actual, okay, here, here are specific things to vote on. It was, it waited until the very end. And really when you get to that, uh, and, and you're counting on sort of the pressure of getting the season started, both sides counting on that pressure. Let me put, put that out there that it, that is, is, is partly negotiation tactics. When you, you get, you try to make it so the other person has something to lose and, 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 and both situations, as you get closer to training camp, have something to lose. So there's the game, the income from the from the uh, training camp games. There's the, the all of those types of things, the ability to sell tickets that the players. But Steve, you, you I want to jump in because you pointed out something in your column yeah. today. You said both sides have something to lose, but there's a third side in this yes. that is also losing out. And I, you take it from there because I think it was a great point. There's a third. There's the two warring factions, if you will, but there's a third one here. Well, yeah, and and. and and that, of course, would be the fans. And 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 you and I've talked about this a lot before. And and I believe this for 
50 years now that, that the CFL, yes, it has to be uh, a business first. It's got to be able to survive. Uh, two, it has to be a league. But it is not exclusively either of those or even just those two. The third thing is that, it, in a way, it's a cultural institution. And I don't think the CFL's played that up enough. They've tried and they pull that, they pull that, uh, put that gun in, uh, in, uh, in their holster occasionally. But they don't, in my mind, they're, they're still working at pulling that together and recognizing that. And what makes it a, a cultural factor is the fans and the connection to the fans and the long-held connection to the fans. So some of them have been turned off. Partly they got turned away a, bit, a little bit because they weren't able to see their team for a year. And then in some places like Hamilton, only limited numbers could see them for a little while. And then you had a reduced break up. And, and all of those things, getting last year was off the ground was great, but they didn't play a full season. Uh, and you tend to, if you don't have the third side of that, Scott, if you're, if, and they're disgruntled to some degree, they're, the uh, ones that are on the edge are now fed up, uh, and, and yeah. uh, we'll see how long this goes. When we will see. That, Steve, I got the other two sides. Yeah, no, I got to jump in, unfortunately, but you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right, and I think the fans always, always get lost in this thing, always, and they're the ones that keep this league going. Uh, Steve Milton, always appreciate it from Hamilton okay. Spectator. Appreciate you. Uh, okay. You can read Steve on the front page of the Spec or at thespec.com today. He's writing about this. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, podcast and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.